Hey, you're listening to This Nazarene Life, stories of young Nazarene clergy and their role models. Today on the podcast, we're hearing from Dr. Joseph Wood. Joseph is a young Nazarene professor and district licensed deacon living in Manchester, England with his wife, Kat, and their two adorable girls, Evelyn and Miriam. He's working on several projects at the moment, but I sat down to talk to him about Nazarene higher education in Britain and his recent work on a resolution regarding baptism in the Church of the Nazarene. Let's listen in. Hey, welcome back to the podcast. I'm Britt Bordrak, and I'm here with my guest, Joseph Wood. Say hello. Hiya, it's Joseph. Joseph is a professor, lecturer here at NTC, Nazarene Theological College. Joseph, tell us a little bit about how you got involved with the Church of the Nazarene. Um, Well, it's quite a simple story. I'm the son of a pastor. Uh, My dad's been a Nazarene pastor since 1970, and so 40 years or so in ministry. Um, he was the son of Nazarenes uh, himself, so I think I'm a, I'm a third generation, maybe a fourth, but I think I'm a third generation Nazarene. Wow. Um, but yeah, so I've always been always been in the Nazarene world. Um, this led me to um, think about university after high school and where do you go? Well, you go to the Nazarene school nearest to you. Uh, so I went to Trevecca. <clears throat> so I graduated from Trevecca in 2005. Mm-hmm. I went in thinking I would do religion, I would do theology. Uh, my interest was actually in math. Oh, I mean, I, I, in high school, math was it. I went, I did every math class we ever had. Um, I made A's in everything. My brain was rational, logical. There has to be an answer to to the problems, right? Okay. I, I didn't deal well with <clears throat> gray things. I didn't right. deal well with, with uh, subjective things. Mm. Hated English class. Did not like to read. And for whatever reason, I chose theology. Um, <laughs> maybe it's because I thought that's just what you do. Uh, maybe it's because I wasn't quite sure. I don't know, but, but I chose theology. D- did my first year, and after I took biblical exegesis, I quit. <laughs> I left theology. <laughs> um, I, I couldn't handle it. Um, I thought... After that first year, that if if biblical exegesis is what it means to do theology, it's not for me. Mm. During that first year, I had taken a history class, and the professor I had was was fantastic. And so I decided, why not look into something else? So I spoke with him, and I ended up moving into the history department. <clears throat> but I didn't want to do just history. I was also interested in maybe becoming a lawyer one day. You know, logic. You know, rational things like that. Right, so right. it kind of made sense. So I did what we what we called a, a pre law degree, but actually it was half history, half political science is what it was. Um, so I moved into that area for the next couple of years. But something happened during that time. Um, as I was reading history, and as I was getting interested in reading, <laughs> full stop, I found that if you find something you're interested in, you can just eat up everything you get. Mm. So history became my my interest, but it was through the teaching of this, this professor. His name was Doctor Armstrong. He was a good Christian, and so anytime he taught history, he always brought in what was happening with the church mm. during that time period. And so through that, 
the the idea of church history filtered into my thinking. Mm-hmm. So because of that, I chose to take a church history class and from the religion department. Right. And I had a professor called Steve Hoskins who who became a mentor of mine. Like I love the guy. He's one of those teachers that you know you you get him or you don't. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, I got him. And so it was through my history professor and then now the church history professor morphing together that gave me this interest in church history. Mm-hmm. I had gone too far in the history department to switch again. Oh. So I ended up getting an undergraduate degree in history and political science. Oh. Um, and then a minor in theology, religion, because mm-hmm. I, I took whatever I could take. Um, and I just found a love for reading, ultimately. Mm-hmm. And found that biblical exegesis isn't the only thing that you do right. in the world of theology. There's much more things you can do. So church history and historical theology became my interest. 2005, um, I'm trying to decide what to do next. And I knew that Rebecca did uh, an MA in theology. So I didn't want to leave Nashville. Mm-hmm. And I did want to pursue further studies because I just enjoyed it. So I applied and, and got accepted to the MA uh, that Trebekah was offering. So I stayed in Nashville for about a year. It was a two-year program, and uh, I loved it. It was interesting, but it was very broad, mm. very, very general. Um, so I did. I had classes in theology. I had classes in pastoral ministry. I had classes in youth ministry. Like whatever was offered, because I wanted to get it done in two years, I would mm. just I would just take it. So I did learn a lot, and I got a broad base of, of further development of my theological thinking and. Um, we didn't even have a history class in the in the MA, which was interesting. Wow. But I kept reading, of course. One of the classes that I took was on John Wesley. And my professor for that class was uh, Dean Blevins, who teaches at uh, Nazarene Seminary now. Right. And he gave us a book by a gentleman called Henry Rack, called Reasonable Enthusiast. And it's the first biography I've read about John Wesley. And it was that book which propelled the next few years of my life. Mm. Um, Henry Rapp's book was fascinating. It was intriguing. It, it, it told me about this person who I had heard about, you know, the Nazarene world. You will hear about John and Charles Wesley. Right. Um, but I didn't know much about them at all. Mm-hmm. And it was through the reading of, of Henry Rapp's book, um, which I got what Dean called the, uh, the Wesley itch. <laughs> all right. So I got the Wesley itch and I had to scratch it, you know, to keep going with the metaphor. Right. Um, so I started thinking, okay, what's next for me? And again, during this time, uh, I felt God calling me into something. Mm. Um, and maybe that's another episode that we could do is, is about calling. Mm. Um, because I didn't feel called into pastoral ministry, but I knew I had some kind of a calling on my life. So working through uh, that with, with mentors in my life, my parents, family, and, and support from all of them, um, ultimately I, I made the decision to continue studying because I, I thought maybe teaching is something that, that I would do. I finished the MA at Tribeca, and during that time, I had to decide what, what would be next. So I started looking at PhD programs in the States, but then I looked at how much they cost, <laughs> and I was just overwhelmed um, by, by the expense of this thing. So as I was doing this searching, uh, and as I was trying to fulfill what I thought was this calling, if further, further education, higher education, um, one of my mentors, I was talking to him, and he said, did you know... That we have a school in Manchester, England. I was like, no, never heard of that. And he said, yeah, yeah, we have a Nazarene 
theology school in in Manchester, England. What's Manchester? You know, England is London. You know, it's like, <laughs> no, it's in the north of England. It's a big city, and uh, and and they do they do theology, and I think they even do PhDs. It's like we have a Nazarene school that does a PhD. So, yeah, yeah. Why don't you why don't you check them out? This is a small town boy from East Tennessee being encouraged to look at moving away to another country. Right. Um, and studying for at least three years, um, mm. you know, the PhD in, in the United Kingdom or three years full time. It's overwhelming. Um, so I emailed them and I got an email back saying, um, Kent Brower, who's one of our um, lecturers here, will be in Kansas City in a few weeks time. Oh, wow. Um, would you be able to meet him there? So Kent said, why don't you come and do an MA? You can do an MA in, in one year, one calendar year. You can live on campus full time, get a taste of what British education is like because it's very different. I've now found out mm. from American education, and if you after that year do well and you are interested in pursuing further studies like PhD, then um, you can apply it for the PhD program. So initially, I thought, oh man, I just want to go straight into the PhD, um, but he he had some good advice, so I decided to to make the leap. And I moved to Manchester in September of 2006. Um, so you got your MA and your PhD in four years? Yeah. Uh, well, no, five years in the end. Oh, right. Um, I did the MA in one year. Mm-hmm. So I moved here in September of 06 and, and did it full time. And our, grad, our graduation is in October. So I graduated in October of 07. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from October until May mm-hmm. of 2008. Um, I was living in the States because um, you, you have to get a visa. My visa had run out. Um, so I was living in the States with my parents while applying for a PhD because once I, once I came here, once I saw the college, once I experienced what, what teaching is like here, what learning is like here, what research is like here, um, it was just a fantastic place, and I knew this is where I wanted to study. Um, and added bonus to that is it was about a third of the cost mm. of any of those programs that I was looking at in the States. Wow. And it's only three years rather than four years mm-hmm. full-time. Um, the other difference, major difference in, in research degrees in the UK is there's a focus on research. So there's no classes involved. Um, for those three years, it was me and a supervisory team working together on my own pace with my own timing, my own scheduling, our own deadlines. You know, we just worked together on this. Um, for three years, I would go to conferences and I would present papers and, you know, that's just what you do, but no classes are involved. Um, there were no, uh, no language requirements because I wasn't doing, I I did John Wesley, of course. Um, so there's no language requirements that I had to have. I didn't take a GRE. We do have a higher standard of entrance. Um, so you need to have a high quality master's level work to be admitted to the PhD. And it did take me about six months to get my, my proposal approved. Mm. Um, so I, I do encourage students who are frustrated that it, it does take a long time. Um, but the idea is, is that we're, we're trying to get you on the right, the right foot, footing uh, when you begin um, so that you don't spend the first year trying to figure things out. Mm. From day one, you know what your project is and you're working on it with your supervisory team. So yeah, three years, um, I ended up writing a full draft. And I, you can add, add an extra year, what they call a, uh, a uh, submission pending year. Mm-hmm. So I added an extra year, and that was just for editing. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, within four years, I finished the PhD. So that was 2012. 
is when I finished my PhD. That's really interesting. So full disclosure, yeah. I got my MA here as well, right. here yeah. at NTC in Manchester, England. Yeah. And I'm just curious if you could tell us kind of in a nutshell yeah. what the differences are between getting an MA in the U.S. and an MA here, because you have both. Yes, I do. Yeah. Um, uh, so the Trevecca MA is, is, I will have to say, that's my own experience as in studying um, in the U.S. at, at uh, graduate level. But being in higher education for the last 10, 12 years, um, I do have a good understanding of what's required across the board, across the sector. So this is just a glimpse from my experience. North America, in university, you are in, you're basically doing what we call liberal arts. Mm-hmm. And the idea there is that you've got a number of course units that you take, um, which give you, again, this broad sweep of learning. Um, so you'll say I was a history major, but I still had to do fine arts. I had to do business. I had to do communications, all these different things. Then you start to focus as you move forward a bit, um, in your major, whatever that is. Um, as you move on in your MA, um, if you move on to graduate studies, again, my MA was very broad. Um, many MAs now are what they call 33 hours, which usually translates to about uh, 11 classes, 12 classes. Some are more, some are less, but around that. And, and again, it's, you have a core that you're required to take, and, and which is a broad thing, and then you might focus on a certain area. Even in PhD in the States, you still have a number of classes. There's classes teaching. The classroom is, is very much a focus in the States. So for your first couple of years, you're in class. You're, you're learning, you're having an instruction, you're being taught. Um, and then your last couple of years, you start to work on your own research. Now let's set that alongside the British system. Say I chose history. From day one, you're only in history classes in your undergraduate studies. Wow. You only do history. So imagine your major that you chose in the American institution, mm-hmm. where you do a majority of your classes... In Britain, in Britain, you only do those classes. So our students um, at NTC who do an undergraduate degree are doing only theology ministry classes. Um, the benefit of that is you really know your subject by the end of it. Mm. Um, but from an American perspective, you, you have a narrow focus, mm. so you don't get the broad sweep. You're not a well-rounded person. Exactly. So this continues as you move on to, into what we call postgraduate study, equivalent to graduate study. Um, so my MA, Brittany's MA, was only four classes mm-hmm. um, in a, a more narrowed focus. You, you choose, of course, but, but you have a more narrow focus. And you have a dissertation. Now, you have a dissertation at, at undergraduate level as well. Mm. So, again, the focus is on research and writing, mm-hmm. less class time, mm-hmm. and more independent learning. So then when you get to your PhD, you really only focus on a very, very narrow topic. Um, but you've been designed to do that. So that's the differences. Um, in Britain, you are focusing earlier and earlier to the point that when you get to your undergraduate studies, you're only doing one subject. And then in America, you're broad, 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 all the way up even to PhD. Mm. And then you have a focus. So that's just a glimpse of the differences. Mm-hmm. Um, there's benefits and consequences to both. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and as you said, because I've been able to study in both countries, I understand the benefits and the, the challenges mm-hmm. uh, of both. And, and I can see good arguments for either mm-hmm. system. Um, my recommendation is that you do both. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, have an experience outside of the States. Yeah. Um, go and learn in a different way. 
And uh, it even ticks the box of an American broadening experience. Right. Because if you're going somewhere else to learn, then you are broadening your mm-hmm. your understanding, your learning, your, your critical thinking as well. Say I was a pastor in the U.S. and I was interested in this MA program or PhD program, but mm-hmm. I think I don't want to move to Britain. Yeah. What, what, what do I do? Yeah. Well, both our MA and our PhD can be done part-time. We offer our classes in, um, in intensive format for our part-time students. So in January and in, in May, um, we have about eight or nine days <clears throat> where the students, the MA students come, that you've been doing your reading for a few months beforehand, um, preparing for your class. And then you come and you've got this intense week of study with your other classmates. So you would fly here, you would stay on campus, um, you would get the international experience that you might be looking for. <clears throat> you make lifelong friends, and um, then you go home and you've got another couple of months to, to do your coursework, to finish that up. Um, that's basically how it works. Um, we're looking at more and different ways of being flexible, uh, but at the moment, um, that's the way you would do it if you wanted to stay in your home assignment. So a lot of people, the majority of our students are actually part-time, and they come over for these intensive sessions. And what does the PhD look like? <clears throat> so the PhD part-time is uh, very much dependent on your relationship with your supervisor. Um, in addition to, we do have a residential period every summer. So part-time PhD students, has you, you double everything. So full-time is three years, part-time is six years. And for both uh, full and part-time, you can add this extra year, for what we call submission pending, to do the editing and things of the final piece. Um, our part-time PhD students will usually come in uh, once a year in the summertime in June for at least a couple of weeks. Um, that's an intense period where you'll have other uh, of your your colleagues, you know, your other PhD students who are there. You you present papers, uh, your research, what you've been working on for the last few months, a few years, or for the year. Um, you will, uh, again, make lifelong friends. Um, you'll find other students working in a similar area to you, and so you can, you know, share good practice and good research techniques and things like that. Um, but uh, ultimately, it, it really becomes your your program. Um, we do have this line where we say this isn't spare time; this is part time. Mm. So, for students who want to do a PhD part time, they need to understand that this is a big part of their life. It's not something that they can just do on the weekends. Um, so, for students who are part time but working full time, we actually do ask the questions about employment. We ask the questions about does your employer support this? Um, so. In our case, we're, we're talking primarily to, to pastors. So people in pastoral ministry, education is something that's required. Mm-hmm. Um, lifelong learning is something that we do as, as ordained ministers. And so this can tick that box. Um, so your churches should be encouraged to support you in that. So many of our um, students who are full-time pastors are given time by their um, church boards to do this work. Hmm. For some, it takes the shape of one day a week. They're dedicated to, to research. Don't bother me. I'm turning off my emails. You know. Yeah. Um, for others, it's um, short breaks throughout the year. So, okay, you can have a week off um, dedicated to study, but it won't be vacation time. You know. Um, and then, of course, your residential your residential time when you come over. 
um, they'll allow you to do that because they see this as fulfilling a part of your role as being an ordained minister. Um, that's the best case scenario. Um, just, just a word of wisdom. If you are considering something like this, please do talk to your employer and, and get them on board. Some of our students are in teaching posts. So they're already in, in a university and their university requires them to get a PhD. Um, so obviously they're encouraging and supporting of their research, um, which is very important. Most of our supervisors are based in the UK, but we do have a number of supervisors around the world mm. um, who are connected to us and approved by Manchester. If your supervisor happens to live in North America where you live, it's possible to, for you to go and meet them face to face um, they might be based at an institution that has a library that you can use. So many of us, we do have a residential period every January, uh, every spring, January or March, at, at Nazarene Seminary hmm. um, in Kansas City. In Kansas City, so we have a couple of our supervisors go over, and some of our supervisors are approved. Um, they are, some of our approved supervisors are NTS faculty. Hmm. So our students can go to Kansas, present their work there mm. with some of uh, our supervisory team and other students. So that's just another way of getting you connected. Um, increasingly, supervisors are willing to do video conference. Mm. So Skype, FaceTime, whichever you know piece you want to use. Um, I in particular, I use this all the time with my students. Um, I much prefer face to face than email. I hate email. Um, I'll do it because I have to. But I'd much rather just do a face-to-face. Yeah. And if that's through, you know, my iPad, I'm happy to do that. So just changing gears a little bit. Okay. Um, Your young PhD Nazarene professor, um, I'm really interested in your work with the resolution on um, baptism that you've been working on, paper you presented in California. So if you could just tell us a little bit about that journey. Okay. Okay. just to give you a bit of background, I, I teach church history, so I, I did, ultimately I got a job uh, as lecturer in church history here at NTC, and uh, I also I teach an undergraduate, postgraduate, and I research, or I supervise PhDs as well. Um, my, my PhD is in the area of John Wesley and ecclesiology, and my interests are in uh, sacramental theology, worship, um, and of course, you know, Wesley studies. So that, that's where I'm coming from, just to, to bear that one in mind. Um, one of the things that I've noticed in, in the Nazarene world is, is a number of uh, interesting inconsistencies or interesting ways in which we've received the traditions of the church. Um, let me explain what I mean by that. If you know much about the Nazarene history, you would know that we're a, a conglomeration, a, a mixture of a number of different traditions. So we claim Wesley. Um, that's one, one thing. We, we claim Methodism. And, and Methodism comes from the Church of England um, in the 18th century uh, as, a, as a renewal movement within the church. And of course, Church of England comes from the Roman Catholic Church. The Catholic Church comes from the wider Big C Catholic Church, ultimately, uh, to the book of Acts. So, you know, we're, we're tracing our heritage through Wesley, ultimately to Jesus, mm-hmm. through tradition. But we also have some other streams involved. So one of those streams is the holiness movement of the 19th century. Um, the holiness movement of the 19th century has a lot of key elements like revivalism, um, camp meetings, um, hymn singing, 
Uh, and him writing, I would also emphasize that. Now, that is another stream from the Wesley side. Charles Wesley wrote over 9,000 hymns. Um, we don't sing many of them, but we he, he's written loads. Uh, <laughs> so the, the Holos movement, revivalism of the 19th century, had a certain emphasis on on uh, an experience of, of what we call sanctification, um, holiness, and an emphasis on the holy living, which Wesley also emphasized. Many of those in the holiness movement would claim Wesley again as a mm. roots, but it's a reinterpretation of Wesley. Um, for good or for ill, that's up to you to decide, uh, but it's definitely a reinterpretation of his, his thinking and, and practice. The other stream that we have is Pentecostalism. Um, you may or may not be aware that in the beginnings of the Church of the Nazarene, we were called the Pentecostal Church of the Nazarene. Right. And the reason for that is there was a group of, of Pentecostals who decided to join uh, the Church of the Nazarene um, as a denomination. And one of the concessions that the, the broader Nazarenes made to the Pentecostal group was to include Pentecostal mm. in, in the name. Mm. This was in 1908. And so for uh, 10 years... We were the Pentecostal Church of the Nazarene. Right. So Pentecostal comes with its own emphasis in, in certain types of worship. So freedom in worship. So we're moving far away from what Wesley would have understood of Church of England worship, Book of Common Prayer, and mixed with a revivalism and a, a word that's often used in 18th and 19th century is enthusiasm. And enthusiasm for many people was seen as a negative thing. Mm. Um, enthusiasm included um, shouting. It included jumping up and down it included running the aisles it included barking it included crying you know all kinds of manifestations of emotion are connected with this enthusiastic approach mm. the pentecostal stream picks up on that but includes gifts of the spirit primarily speaking in tongues now in 1918 the church of the nazarene decided to drop the pentecostal name because it was being associated with the 1901 event at Azusa Street of the Pentecostals speaking in tongues. Mm. Now, the Nazarenes aren't against or opposed to gifts of the Spirit. We're not opposed to speaking in tongues, but it's not something that we emphasize. So if we have Pentecostal in our name, those seeing that name would, would imagine and guess that speaking in tongues becomes... Uh, a key feature of what we do. Right. And in many Pentecostal churches, it's actually a requirement or an evidence of your salvation, which we would not go that far. So these are the three streams coming together. With these three streams also comes different understandings of baptism. Mm. Okay, um, For Wesley and Methodism, um, baptism is something that happens when you're born. Um, it happens uh, as an infant, this is the normal way of doing things. You you are born into a Christian household, and therefore you're you're baptized as a child as your entry into the church, the beginning point of your life as a Christian. Um, and then later on in life, you um, basically have a choice. So some some people misunderstand infant baptism and thinking that well the, the child didn't have a choice, um, but actually the child does have a choice, and the choice is actually to leave. So they do have a choice. It's just a different way of understanding things. Hmm. Uh, rather than the child having a choice to embrace what's going on and become a Christian, uh, those who practice infant baptism are saying that actually God has saved this child, and it's up to the child to decide later on if they want to reject God. Wow. Okay? That's one way of understanding infant baptism. Hmm. Um, and that comes from the Wesley and the Methodist stream of things. But then the other streams, so particularly um, uh 
Pentecostalism and then the revivalism, um, there's an emphasis on a, um, well, we'll go with revivalism. There's an emphasis on testimony. Okay, so we all know what testimonies are. They're speaking of your experience of salvation, how Jesus has, has saved you. Mm. And these are taking place in the revival movement. Um, and it becomes a key feature. What is your testimony? You know, what is your conversion narrative? You know, mm. what's your story? Um, how has Jesus changed your life? Mm. That becomes an emphasis. And baptism becomes a way of a visible image of this, this testimony that you have. Sure. Now, an infant can't do that. An infant can't make a testimony. Right. It can't witness to the salvation experience. Right. And so the practice of infant baptism doesn't really mesh well with this emphasis on testimony. For Pentecostals, um, that stream, baptism becomes a, a requirement uh, for, for being a member of the church. Mm. Um, it is linked to this idea of salvation, but not in the same way that the revival movement uh, linked it. Um, for Pentecostals, Peter in Acts chapter 2 says, repent, be baptized, receive the Holy Spirit. Right. So for Pentecostal stream, um, baptism becomes a requirement. You, you, you have to. Uh, if you're not baptized, you're not a part of the church. So these are the three streams that are coming together. So the question I started to ask as I read the, through this history and knowing what our practice is today what is membership? So we have baptism, but we have membership as well. And so I started to ask this question of, what's the difference? Is there a difference? There wasn't membership in Wesleyan Methodism. Uh, well, take that back. There wasn't membership in Church of England. Mm. Um, if you were baptized, you're a part of the church. Mm. For Pentecostals, baptism was a sign of you, your salvation. And for many of them, as a requirement to be a Pentecostal, it is as if baptism is your membership. Mm. But then in the revivalist stream, um, there weren't church structures involved. These are just people going out, preaching, teaching, and you might plant a church. And so you, you start from nowhere. Mm. So for them, and at the turn of the 20th century, all of these groups are amongst other groups in a world that's primarily Christian. So membership becomes a thing, which I've suggested is a, what kind of Christian are you? So it doesn't matter to me so much whether you're baptized into the faith. It's what brand of Christianity are you? Are you Pentecostal? Are you Methodist? Are you Reformed? What are you? And your alignment with the denomination becomes what membership does. Membership says, this is the type of Christian that I am. So baptism becomes a secondary issue almost of secondary importance. Now, as I'm reading the Bible, and as I'm looking through history of the church, I just I don't see these two things. So, I'm looking at our Nazarene manual, and I'm seeing the, the practice over the years in our, in our church of, of baptism and membership and how they're two different things. And I've noticed that in membership, baptism isn't required. So that got me thinking, well, what's the point? Mm. Why should I even be baptized? Whether it's a, you know, a born into a Christian family, or whether it's a testimony of my faith, or whether it's a require, requirement um, as evidence of my salvation, it has nothing to do with membership in the Church of the Nazarene. So I'm trying to figure this stuff out, and 
and I've I started working on uh, on an idea, and I thought, well, what it, could we not require it? I mean, it, it seems to be something that's very prevalent in the New Testament. It seems to be a part of the church for the last two thousand years. Why can't we require we require baptism for membership? So I looked at the last few general assemblies and the resolutions, and I've noticed that a resolution has been proposed for at least the last two times that requires baptism for membership. And in each of these cases, it was struck down in committee. It wasn't even voted on in the general floor. Oh, wow. We can talk about this stuff later, how that all works. Sure. But anyway, basically, it was, it was defeated. Mm. So you can't require baptism for membership. So I started to wonder, if that's the case, there's some confusion in the church about what baptism is. Now, I teach church history, and, and any time that I teach, and any time baptism comes up, it's always a hot topic. It's always something that people are interested in. Um, and so for me, as I was thinking, at, looking at our church and looking at our tradition, because I teach people from all different traditions, um, I thought, I think we're missing something here. I, I think we're really mis- misunderstanding what baptism actually is. And so I had an idea to, uh, to write a paper on this. So I'm a part of the Wesleyan Theological Society, and we were meeting in Point Loma Nazarene University in um, March. Um, I, I wanted to write a paper, so I thought, here's my chance. So I wrote a paper on, on this issue and asked these questions. So, so all of those things that I just told you are pieces of that paper. Um, building up a case to say, what's the point of membership and why can't we require baptism for membership? And uh, in the end, the, the paper suggests a way forward. So seeing that the last two general assemblies requiring baptism for membership is just completely out, out of, of, as an option. It's not even going to be a thing. I suggest, so couldn't we, couldn't we require our ordained ministers to be baptized? Now, here's where that thinking came from. If baptism isn't required for membership, and if membership is the only requirement to be a licensed minister, an ordained minister, a district superintendent, or a general superintendent, then logic tells me we can have, and I know this now, have had a general superintendent who has not been baptized. Now, the purpose of ordination, one of the purposes of ordination, is to authorize someone with the authority of the wider church to administer the sacraments. Lord's Supper and Baptism. Therefore, following this logic, we can have those who are ordained to administer these sacraments who have not participated in these sacraments themselves. Wow. Wow. Ever thought about that? This is the research that I've done, and this is the conclusion that I came up with. We can have general superintendents, we can have pastors, we can have district superintendents who are unbaptized. I just don't, that just doesn't compute with me. So once I came to that revelation, I decided, surely, surely we can get uh, a resolution passed which requires baptism for ordination. And it, the beginning point where, where this would happen is at license ministry level. So when, when someone comes to apply for license ministry, the first requirement would be, have you been baptized? Um, that takes care of everything. So, so if licensed ministers have to be baptized, then ordained have to be district superintendents, general superintendents, anyone 
in the ordained world uh, would have to be baptized. So anyone with the authority to baptize will have to have participated in baptism themselves. So you came to this conclusion and you're thinking, we should require our licensed ministers to be baptized. So then what was the next step for you? All right. So the next step is to write a resolution. So the way our church uh, polity works, the way we, we do things, um, is we have what we call the manual. And the manual is like our guidebook on, on how to basically do do everything. Um, well, I say everything. To do all of the legal stuff, you know, to do all of the... Uh, you know, the building stuff, how we're organized, you know, at the general, the regional, the district levels, the local levels, how do you uh, put together your board, who's a part of the board, uh, how do church membership work, how does elections work, what's, um, what's our theology, what's our history, you know, all of these things are put together in this book called the manual. And so the manual is, is a really important document for us. The other thing that the manual does is it's the place where big changes like this um, must take place. So if you want to make any change to our polity or practice um, as a denomination, it has to be done through the manual. And the only way that the manual is changed is by vote of the General Assembly. Mm. Now, the General Assembly meets every four years, and it com- is comprised of representatives from across the denomination, across the world, um, who are sent on the district's behalfs. Um, to uh, discuss things, to vote on things, to elect people, but then to also make changes to our polity and practice. Um, there are different ways that you can make changes, um, but the, the key way is uh, what's called a resolution. Um, you write a resolution. So a resolution simply looks like this. It's a document that has um, the text from the manual that you want to change, or... It has the new text that you want to introduce. So for me, um, and requiring baptism for uh, for membership for licensed ministers, um, I found the section in the manual which describes the criteria necessary for a licensed minister. And would you believe the first thing required for a licensed minister is membership in the Church of Nazarene? So all I did was I included that paragraph in my resolution document, but I added a a bullet point prior to the membership, which simply says, having been baptized into the Christian faith. Um, then it's having been a member in the church for however many years. So that's all I did. That's all you have to do. You just, in my case, it was adding a line to an existing um, text mm. in the document. What happens next? So I've written this resolution. Well, one thing that I'm that I lament a little bit in our church is we don't require very much by way of um, rationale or a reason for this change or this addition. We only require a number of, a, a few bullet points, very short, brief. So in that same resolution document, after the text you've, you've included and you've um, made your indication of what you want to change or add, then you have a section that has a few bullet points making a rationale for why you want to make this change or why you want to add this thing. Um, so I did include about five or six bullet points. But the, the key thing really was my paper. 
So I wish that we had a system that allowed for position papers mm. to be included with resolutions. We don't. Maybe that could be a resolution. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, a position paper. So, so what I've written uh, and presented in California, that's really the reason why I wanted this to happen. Sure. Um, and uh, anyway, so you write your rationale, a few bullet points, and then you have various ways of getting this thing put forward. The, the common way, which many of you probably know, is you present it to your district assembly. Hmm. Now, most assemblies will have a committee, a resolutions committee, who will basically vet these things. Um, they'll have a look at them, and then they will make a decision whether or not to present them to the whole assembly. Other district assemblies don't have that committee, and they will just take whatever people uh, suggest, put it up on the screen or pass it out, and have people vote on it. Um, so there's different ways of, of presenting it to a, at the district level. Um, the district will need to vote on this, and if they approve, if they agree, then it will then be sent to the general secretary. Um, the general secretary uh, will uh, collect all of these different resolutions, gather them together for another a general level resolutions committee, who will then divide them up um, by by type. So basically by manual section. So if it's about uh, a a ministry thing, it will go to the ministry committee. If it's about sure. um, you know a regional thing, it will go to the regional committee. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's the normal way of doing these things. There are other ways, though. So you can uh, have a committee on your district who are the only ones who see these things and present them on the district's behalf. So the mm. district empowers them um, to make these decisions on their behalf. So it doesn't need to be approved by the whole assembly. It just needs to be approved by this committee. But also, and this is the in- most interesting one that many people don't know about, you can have five people from anywhere in the Nazarene world, as long as they're members, support a resolution um, and it has to be considered hmm. by the general secretary and the general resolutions committee. So, you know, if you've got five people around the world, they don't have to be delegates, general assembly delegates. No, not general, not general, ugh, general assembly delegates. Oh, um, I don't think maybe I'm wrong. On maybe that we one. should check it. Yeah, we should check that out. Anyway, even if it was that, yeah, five individuals, right, um, who don't have to be from your district. Mm-hmm. Um, can support a, a resolution. So there's various ways of doing it, um, various ways of getting approval so that it will be considered. Um, but yeah, it, it's actually not that difficult. Um, the most difficult part is is putting it together, mm. making sure you find all of the places within the manual where this might have relevance. So it's the system we're in. It's what we have to deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, at the moment, who knows if something bigger could could be done mm-hmm. um but yeah this is how we work so when it comes to the church and Nazarene manual you make resolutions which propose changes or additions mm. um and it's as simple as that mm-hmm. well and if you're listening to this and you're curious to see joseph's resolution or know what that kind of thing looks like you can find that on our facebook page i'll have a link um there on yeah. on the website I'm, I'm also happy to give you my paper on baptism as well oh yeah because you really do need to read that and understand it um, to make sense of what I've, I've done in the resolution. Sure, we can we can post that as well. Did you have anybody who helped you along the process, or did you just write the resolution by yourself? Um, well, for me, 
Um, because um, because of the nature of what I do, I knew the process. I, I knew what was required, and I had the documents. Um, so in that regard, I, I didn't have anyone help me put put it together. However, I did have a consultation with our. We have a district resolutions committee, mm. <coughs> so I did consult with them uh, personally, mm-hmm. and I spoke to each individual member, um, told them where this comes from why I wanted to make the change, even gave them a copy of my paper, which is, which is you know, the foundation for this, um, before they met. Mm. Um, so that was really important, uh, partly because if, if there was a better way of saying it, um, they could give me some, some tips on that, or there might be someone else who has presented something that I wanted to present. And so it's already in the works, so I don't need to do it. You know, so there, there's lots of things that you need to consider. So m- like I said, most districts do have a resolutions committee. And you can find out who that is through your district secretary um, or the district superintendent or maybe even your pastor. Um, they may even be a member. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are ways to find out who's who's involved. And, you know, in this day and age, anybody's at the end of an email. Um, I've definitely learned that over the last 10 years. Just send an email. All they can say is no. Yeah. You know, why not? Give it a go. So what advice would you have for, say, a young Nazarene clergy that's listening to this that finds themselves um, unsatisfied with a part of the process or with something that's happening on the local level? Um, what advice would you give to them? How to participate? How to have a voice? Mm-hmm. Um, good question. Um, I'm still in the church. Um, primarily because I know every church has problems. I know every church deals with issues. Every church has structures. Every church has, one of my areas of study is ecclesiology. So I'm familiar with all of these different denominational structures. I'm actually um, on a, uh, a board called, uh, so the Free Churches Group, which is a representative board, um, a national board in the UK, which represents churches who aren't Roman Catholic or Church of England. So lots of different, what we call free churches in this country. So Methodist, United Reform, Nazarene, different um, Assemblies of God, lots of different denominations. So I'm a part of their board of directors. And and I understand and I hear all of their challenges as well. So that's the first thing I would say. No matter where you go, you're going to have problems and you're going to have structural issues. Um, the other thing I would say is why, why am I still a part of the, the Nazarene family is that word there, family. So one thing I have noticed um, in my dealings with people from other denominations is I haven't yet found a denomination that has a similar sense of family, of knowing one another. Mm. Um, we're two million-ish, a bit more, people around the world, but we seem to know one another. And I know that I can go to any country in the world where we have a Nazarene church, and I'll be taken care of. I mean, I think Brittany can attest to that as well. Um, that I feel, I don't know, it's like I've got this this worldwide family who would take me in any time I want um, for whatever reason, without question. I'm a Nazarene. Oh, come on in. You know, now as Christians, we should do that anyway. Um, but I know in the Nazarene world, it just seems to be what we do. Um so when I go and stay somewhere, I often look to see if there's Nazarene churches or, or connections where I'm going to be going. And instead of getting a hotel, I might say, hey, could I stay with somebody in their house? Mm. Um, and we immediately are friends. It's, it's kind of like that, 
that old friend that you haven't seen for years, you just pick right up. So that's another thing that I, I do appreciate about us. It comes with its problems as well because everybody knows everybody. Mm. You know, so if any any bad things happen, um, they're quickly known and quickly distributed. And again, you have that in any church. Um, the other thing I would say is there seems to be an increasing emphasis on mission. I say an increasing emphasis. So how it looks on the ground might be very different where you live. Um, I do know where I am here in the UK. It's definitely an emphasis. And the the fact that the church is for the community in which they find themselves. Um, and I love that. I, I appreciate the fact that um, the Nazarene denomination calls himself a, a, a holiness denomination who... In the past, was we're, we're set apart, we're different, we bring ourselves away from the mess. But the increasing emphasis now seems to be, okay, yeah, we understand that we need to be taken away from the mess. But Jesus sends us right back into the mess. So the way I understand our, our holiness theology is that we are, um, we are separated, we're set apart, we're cleansed, we're renewed, we're filled with the Spirit, but it doesn't stop there. It, it sends us right back into where we were taken from. Um, so Jesus going into um, Samaria, why did he do that? Well, it's because Jesus has been set apart for a task, and he goes right into the mess. Samaria mm. was the mess. Mm. <laughs> it really was. Um, when uh, Jesus comes into into the city where Zacchaeus was, and Zacchaeus is up in the tree. Um, well, Jesus isn't supposed to be visiting with, hanging out with a person like Zacchaeus. What did he do? Well, he went right into the mess. And he sat with Zacchaeus and had a meal with him. And what happened mm. to Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus changed. You know, so the emphasis on mission and be involved in your community and transformation um, is another key key thing that I, I love about our church. Um, I'll stop there. Uh, well, yeah, that, that <laughs> kind of answers my last question because yeah. I, I like to ask what gives you hope for the future of the Church of the Nazarene. Yeah, yeah. And- well, I would say that if we can continue on this trajectory of of living out our holiness theology um, and living it in such a way that it's not an us-them I'll use the word bifurcation, you know, an us-them situation. So we're the holy ones, you're not, as it may have been about 100 years ago. Mm. It's a God calls us and sets us apart for a purpose, and that purpose is to call others to be set apart. And that doesn't mean we bring them out. It means that we go to them. So if that's our emphasis, and that continues to be our emphasis, um, that we, we go to rather than being taken from, then I'm all for it. That's awesome. Well, I really appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us. And um, I hope that everybody else enjoyed hearing from you as well, because I know Mm -hmm. I did. If you want to get connected with me, feel free to send me an email, jwood at nazarene.ac.uk. The website of the college, if you're interested in NTC, nazarene.ac.uk. We're also on Facebook um, and Twitter as well. And uh, thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. That's awesome. Thanks. Thanks.